You're listening to the Rogers Sporting Goods Podcast. This is Aaron Jones. This is Chandler Smith, and I hate long intros, so let's get into it. Does it have a year? Let's look. First printing, 74. Fifth printing, 99. So it's every bit of at least 20 years old. Oh, it's 50 years old. The, the content is, anyway. The content, yeah. Yeah. But it doesn't look like to me it's changed, Ben, since the one I saw well, in the no. 70s. No, it was printed as a a little uh, a field guide with some good info, but it's, it's... You know, when they started the point system and all the different things that duck hunters had to start identifying birds, they knew they had to do something to give duck blind guys a pocket guide. Right. Help yeah. figure out what the hell we're shooting. That's the that's the word I was looking for. They they printed the book in the space that you could stick in the pocket or blind bag or whatever. The illustrations look straight up out of the seventies. Like, yeah, mm-hmm. it has not changed. Yeah, it's it's probably it's probably the same, yeah. The same stuff. And and that's waterproof paper, I think. Best attempt anyway. Water water resistant paper. What did we shoot, man? What is this? <laughs> yeah. Shoot, shoot first, and then figure it's, it out later. Right? That's it's, the it's, proper. It's a great blue. Yeah. Tundra Merganser. <laughs> Aaron, right I, I went to work in '79 in the Oklahoma City area, and the first waterfowlers I encountered uh, <laughs> on one of my first uh, patrols was two guys in in chest waders standing in hip deep water arguing over a bird. And I was just driving along the shoreline. I come along, they hailed me down. Hey, there's the game warden. We'll get him. Oh, he'll settle this. And I got down there and wanted to see what, what's the problem, boys, you know. And, well, this is my duck. And, no, it's my duck. Well, I shot it first. Well, no, I'm the one that hit it. And they went back and forth right in front of me a little bit. It was a cormorant. <laughs> <laughs> I'm pretty sure that's his, not mine. <laughs> oh, goodness. So you settled the debate. I settled the debate. It was both their birds. Ooh. And it wasn't a duck at all. No. Mm. Classic. So, anyway. Beginners beginners messes. Yes. I'm sure you've seen and heard lots of stories of other things similar to that. Oh, there's been crazy stuff. Probably no more than Ben's seen. Um, You know, after a while, you do start to see the same monkey business over and over again Mm -hmm. but yeah it was it's it's been pretty pretty funny when i was in louisiana years ago i was working uh, in waterfowl research and i had placards on the side of my truck that said louisiana state university and it was a picture of a mallard hen and we were doing a telemetry project and the birds were wearing these radio transmitters and you could see that in the picture and i was getting fuel one day in a little town and and uh this fella pulled up beside me, and man, he was grinning ear to ear. And with this truck, it also had this big antenna on top of it, and it was really goofy looking. I mean, uh-huh. Everybody did a double take, but he felt compelled to come say hello. And I could tell when he walked up, he was just going to be excited to talk to whoever this was driving this this truck with this mallard on the side of it. Well, he comes up and announces to me that he's he's hunted that morning and he's killed some ducks, and he was very proud and said he hadn't killed a limit of ducks in years. And he was, you guys are doing a good job. We got birds this year, and. Of course, nothing I was doing had anything to do with, you know, local management or anything. We were studying what habitat these birds were using, but he just couldn't help it. And as I got fuel, he convinced me to come on over and look over the bed rail of his truck and see his ducks. You know, come on, you want to see him? I got me a limit first time in a long time. I get over there and he had a couple of coots and a couple of uh, like pie bill greaves, but there wasn't a duck in the pile. <laughs> <laughs> but he was as proud as he could be and they were yeah. definitely going to go home and go to good use. So That's funny. That's one of my favorite Miss ID stories. Oh yeah, people, people come up with anything like they if it's got wings and it's flying in the air and it's over water. They it's over it's water. There you well, go. and for the coot, you know, around here, there's not a lot of folks seeking out the coot to harvest the coot, but there are regions of the country where that's a prize, mm-hmm. and they're excited to get them and and uh, plan on cooking them in the whole nine yards. Right. Yes, that's exactly right. Chandler, who are we talking with today? We're actually. Uh, in Henrietta, Oklahoma, uh, was a couple guys from G&H. We got uh, Carlos um, Gomez. He was the first one to talk about uh, the stories with the Comorant, and then we have Ben over here. Um, 
both guys are working for GNH, and we'll get into that a little bit more here coming up. But uh, yeah, we've uh, real quick why we're doing this podcast is Roger Sporting Goods is actually has purchased and brought in um, decoys from GNH um, for this fall 2022 season. Um, so it's an American factory, and we're here at the factory right now. We've done some videos and stuff touring it, which has been pretty cool. Um, but from here, we're going to get into kind of the story and um, of G&H from the beginning and whatnot. Um, yeah. So, yeah, we'll get to it. Um, we'll start. Um, let's start with Ben. Ben, what's your affiliation with G&H? Well, here? I'm our director of sales. And uh, first of all, it's very exciting that Rogers is involved. Uh, they placed a great order with a lot of our different products. So, you know, your customers, customers are going to have the opportunity to look through just about everything we make. And, uh, and that'll be great. Uh, you guys do a fine job of getting products around the country. Uh, I've been to your warehouse and facility and seen how everything is packaged and processed and shipped out. And, man, what a top-notch deal. So uh, this is a great partnership. Um, and I'm excited that you came here because it's, it's not until you come to Henrietta and walk the grounds where we're building decoys that you really get, you know, what's different about GNH. And, and it probably starts to explain how we've been here so long and why we have the fans we have. I mean, in reality, it's just a duck decoy. But as you travel about the country and you start talking duck decoys, you'll find GNH folks out there that are truly fans and they, and they support what's happening here. And I'm, I'm hope, hopeful that you guys, you know, gathered that yourselves as you walk through the factory. Yeah. Aaron, I wanted to also weigh in on that and, and let you know that we're very proud to be a part uh, partner with Rogers and, and to have you guys here. You know, one of the things that first struck me when I first came into the factory, and I'll put you on the spot and ask you how you felt about it. Uh, when I first came into the factory, the first thing that struck me was old. The place is old. It's 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 like a time capsule, right, from the 60s or 70s. And, you know, the factory is an old building, and it's in a very uh, established location. It's been here a long, long time. You go through the factory, and I don't know if Ben walked you through and showed you the different sections of the building as it was added on through the generations, but... Um, the outside of the building was here and then it moved and the outside of the building was there and then they, it was moved again and it was added on. So as, as business grew and, and things went along, it continued to expand. And, you know, at first sight, I wasn't real impressed with that. I looked at the old building and I thought, man, this place is old, but I come to realize, and, and from also talking to a lot of waterfowlers, uh, there's such a heritage involved with a lot of young and old waterfowlers, people that it's in their blood and they are so devoted to waterfowling. And GNH goes back so many generations and the uh, history and the quality of a decoy that lasts for so long, getting passed down through families and so forth, um, relates back to this old of this building. And it, it helped me to get a connection and appreciation, it, it's kind of like going back to your old homestead or something. You know, you might go back to your old homestead where Grandpa was born and raised, and you you, you don't just see it as old anymore. Once you get some, some feel of the history, I come to realize what a, what a great place it is. You know, there's just boxes and boxes of, of papers stashed out here, and that's all of the folders and all of the employee documents from generations of people from Henrietta that's been here working a lot of history yeah that is something you definitely notice you can see and even a lot of the machines the original machines stamping out the original decoys i mean yeah there's history right right there's definitely history there which is pretty cool so carlos when was the first time that you ran into gnh not worked for you know but when you when you first time you heard about them used them saw them in a spread <sighs> boy that's a tough one you know i'm going to tell you that uh, you know as my name implies, I've got some Spanish heritage. My dad came up from South America uh, in the 50s, and I was born in the 50s, and uh, he was a hunter, and he liked to waterfowl hunt, and we went waterfowl hunting from the time I was too young to go to school still. And, you know, my dad, and I guess I'll call it budget or whatever, but, you know, he's one of these guys that would buy whatever floated, whatever looked like a duck. So I've been around decoys my whole life, but 
I'm going to say a herder's catalog, if that tells you anything about how far back it goes. Um, I collected herder's catalogs in the 60s, you know, and it was it was like a phone book. You know, it was that same kind of yellow thin paper of a phone book um, with all that hunting gear and so forth. And I'm, I'm sure there were GNH decoys in there. But I'll confess, I, I hadn't had any connection to GNH specifically until... Ray Penny reached out to me and said, hey, I'd like you to join our team and, and be director of conservation. So um, I knew GNH decoy was GNH decoy. And, and you can't drive this region of the state and not drive by this factory at some point. You can't not notice it. It's, it's a big, impressive building with a big sign on the side. And, and I always knew it was a decoy company, right? And uh, I, I use a uh, white-tailed deer decoy. I use waterfowl decoys. I use turkey decoys. Um, so I'm into decoys. But, you know, again, the way I was brought up is, you know, what what can you find and what can you use and what, what works? And so I had gotten away from waterfowl hunting after being a game warden for about five years. Now, Ben's just the opposite. He's, he's so hardcore waterfowl that... Uh, I, I think you could take the game warden out of him before you took the waterfowl out of him. No doubt. But uh, <laughs> but but for me, I had a bad experience uh, as a young waterfowler, young game warden. Somebody uh, took my, my Labrador from my home, uh, put his collar on a stray dog, and dropped that dog off at the dog pound. And uh, he was my buddy, my partner. He was my ride-along uh, super smart dog, and uh, at that point, I kind of laid down the waterfowl hunting for a number of years. Now, I still hunted with buddies and people that wanted to take me out and 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 go hunt, you know. And I loved to hunt anything, and waterfowl was certainly a lot of fun. But I didn't get real hard into collecting waterfowl decoys and doing it like Ben does. Mm -hmm. Sure. Well, yeah, that I can understand that losing a dog like that—that's awful. Yeah, you know, it was almost like losing it. I didn't have any kids at the time, you know, mm -hmm. and he was my boy, so. You know, for somebody to kidnap your boy and then, you know, put his clothing on some other mannequin oh, yeah. and drop him off somewhere, you know, or whatever, it was just, it was pretty devastating. So that, that kind of took the wind out of my sails. We used to waterfowl hunt a lot together, just me and the dog. But that was, that was 40 years ago. Mm -hmm. So I'm back. Yeah. And, and, and let me just say that uh, Ray Penny, I don't know if you heard all this part, but Ray Penny uh, was a prosecutor. You know, he's been a Marine uh, he became a lawyer. Um, he uh, became a prosecutor in Tulsa County. I was the game warden there. And, uh, you know, one of the big problems that they have in wildlife enforcement is prosecution. They, you know, we hear about prosecution all the time as being problems in the world these days. But back back in the wildlife world, we're so low on the totem pole that prosecutors just don't give a rip and they'll make excuses and they won't prosecute poachers. So game wardens catch people, load them up, take them, turn them in. Uh, prosecutors make excuses and people get let go for a little or nothing. And then we wonder why they keep reoffending. But uh, Ray Penny was one of those few prosecutors in 40 years. I can count them on one hand. That was a great prosecutor that really cared. And uh, we became good friends. We waterfowl hunted together some. Uh, I didn't know what the future had in it, but at one point after he left the DA's office um, and got involved with GNH Decoy, and and he knew I was pretty passionate about conservation, and, and I really am. Uh, it's It's been in my blood for my whole life, and it's something I feel very strongly about. So he wanted GNH to have a bigger presence in conservation, not just be about making decoys, not just making money, but but have a presence in conservation, and I'm all about that. So, as you can tell already, I, I'm not afraid to talk too much. So, it's <laughs> well, one of those things that I was all on board with doing that. So, that's why I'm here. Sure. Well, it's a clear message. They brought in a dedicated person with a, a lifetime of experience and expertise uh, to head that mission up. And that's, you know, you can see commitment in that alone. Absolutely. I think we were talking on the way down here that, I mean, I've duck hunted over every brand of decoys there is, but... My first memories of duck hunting with my grandfather and his hunting buddy were with GNH decoys. I can remember that uh, I was I was telling Ben yesterday that 
they didn't really have bunches of decoy bags in my grandfather's basement. I remember he would have the waxed cardboard boxes with the handles in the side. And I think there would be a dozen stacked on their, their tails, all the floating duck decoys, a dozen stacked in a box with the braided cord and the lead strap weights wrapped around the head. And then I can remember, you know, I, I didn't ever go down with them because I was seven years old and didn't have a pair of waders. So I wouldn't go out throw out decoys with them. But I remember going to their duck lease and hunting with them and they would leave them out for year after year. And I can remember that finally after it seemed like 10 or 12 years, they'd have to start replacing decoys. And, you know, they'd sit out all season and, you know, muskrats would get some of them or floods would get some <laughs> of them. You know, that's just a few casualties of the season. But that's, that's what I remember, just the signature GNH decoy. You know, that's, you remember that signature carve. So as long as I can remember, that's that's what I grew up hunting with and learning to hunt over were GNH decoys. So it's kind of cool there. But um, yeah, that, that yeah. might be one of the most exciting or most fun things I've enjoyed since I've been involved here is when we go somewhere public and we've got the GNH banner up. It is story just like that. After just you know one mm -hmm. right after the other, folks will come up and it'll it'll start with, "Hey man, how you doing? This is great." And then they they introduce this story and it always involves a family member or some kind of mentor role and and back in the day and then and then they usually will say and we still have a few of those in our spread now or they'll work in how it's mm -hmm. it's kind of made that and and let's face it most folks use a variety of different brands of products mm -hmm. when they're in the field you may have a camo shirt on from one company and waiters on from another same thing with decoys you'll have several different you know brands out there uh, we're just glad everybody's out there. But with G&H, you'll hear that. It'll, there'll be some heritage story involved every time. It's wonderful. And, and that has been an eye-opener for me. <clears throat> As I've described, you know, I've, I've been around waterfowlers my whole life and hunters my whole life. But in the five months that I've been in, involved with G&H Decoy, and I've been in some of these meetings where we've uh, done booths and, and met the public and that sort of thing, it almost makes you just look at each other and say, is this guy for real? Should somebody send in a plant that walks up and starts telling us about the devotion and the love and the heritage of grandpa's decoys and da-da-da? Over and over again, we hear that story. And guys keep coming up and saying, that's the only decoy I, I have. Uh, I've had the ones I have for 30 years. And grandpa handed me these decoys, and I hunted over these when I was a kid. And that sort of thing. And I kid you not, I hear that all the time. And and coming from where I just told you where I wasn't loyal to a brand, I didn't have a big connection to just GNH decoy. Uh, when I meet guys that, that go on and on about, I mean, they sound like a salesman for GNH decoy as they come up and, and want to greet us and talk about it. And they're so happy to see GNH is back. So... It, it gives you a good feeling that uh, the loyalty to the brand and the quality that they talk about is so strong. Oh, it's an inspiration for me. I mean, I, I feel like there's people out there riding on our success here. You know, yeah. they're counting on this to work and us to make sure that, right. that we are back and we're, we're going to stick around another 88 years. And uh, that way they'll have an opportunity for their kids and grandkids to come and have yeah. those experiences. Yeah, so we might have listeners who, who don't know who G&H is, and we might have listeners who do. Uh, let's start from, like, the beginning. So that's, that's 1934. Mm -hmm. Take it away, Carlos. You do a well, great job I appreciate that. the story. Um, I will tell you, again, that I was familiar with this factory being here and that they made decoys, but I was not familiar with the colorful history, the long history of G&H decoy till I came here and started learning more about it. Now, anybody that hunts and anybody that goes afield uh, knows who Teddy Roosevelt is, and they know who uh, Aldo Leopold is, and they know about the conservation movement that started, let's go back to the turn of the uh, 20th century. In, in the year 1900, everything's getting established in, in the United States, um, a lot of folks are living off the land. We didn't have the hog production. We didn't have the livestock. We didn't have the chicken houses. We didn't have all the things that provided all this mass food for the public. So to get protein, people went out and they hunted. So we slaughtered a lot of things. And uh, it's a well-established fact that our wildlife was being de depleted and destroyed. And it was up until through, I'd say, 1900 to 1930s, that there, were, there was an epiphany that 
hey, we got to do something, right? Things are just getting wiped out. And so they passed some of those laws. And, um, you know, if you look at your waterfowl regulations, there's a rule in there that I've always seen as a game warden that I read that says no live decoys permitted. And I used to think, even as a young game warden, I used to think, man, if I wing a duck and he's out there swimming around in a circle and I don't finish him off or I can't get him finished off, am, am I breaking the law? Because, I mean, he's like a live decoy swimming around out there. Well, come to find out that law was created at the time uh, that the Duck Stamp Act began in 1934. Everybody that buys a duck stamp can research that and see it goes back to the 30s and and in 34 they introduced those rules and regulations and they put a stop to the live decoy the first decoys were uh, live birds with a line tied to their foot and an anchor in the water and that duck would swim around out there and bring in the birds and I guess it was pretty effective but they outlawed that so it was somewhere there I think from the late 20s and the early 30s that uh, Grandpa Gazalski and his father-in-law Hutton were the two guys that said, well, hey, we're going to have to do something here and let's make some decoys. And it became such a popular idea that people kept riding in and wanting decoys and they started making them and selling them uh, initially out of their garage. And then, of course, developed. Uh, there was a son born and uh, uh, Richard Gazalski, known as Dick Gazalski, which later became Duck Gazalski. And uh, Duck Gazalski was born in 34. So that was just an irony there. But he was born in 34. Uh, he became a Marine in the, in the 50s. And the United States was at war with a country in the 1950s. And that same country is now trying to take over our country in all kinds of different ways without guns and bullets. But uh, he had a strong uh, dislike for that. Uh, bunch of folks and he felt like maybe it, it goes back to the Korean War but he felt like you know I am not giving in to this and he was very resistant very stubborn about keeping this company American uh, not doing business that way keeping everything made in America keeping his employees from America keeping his his uh, uh, his product materials coming from America and everything was made in America to Dick Gazalski. so uh, as time went on from the 60s, he had, of course, taken over the business. Grandpa uh, passed away, Hutton passed away, and he managed it up through the 90s to the year 2000s, thereabout, that it was doing really well. It was in its heyday, and uh, he, he just did fabulous things with the business. So, uh, you know, I could go on and on about it, but the but the the nutshell there is that uh, he was a, a real patriot to this country, and he he was so stubborn about we are going to be made in America, and a lot of other decoys, and I'm not going to start naming names or, or 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 claiming every single one and this sort of thing, but most all of the decoys are made overseas, and now we know about supply chain issues, and now we know about. Um, all kinds of different factors that control whether or not you have access to product and materials to make those products and the employees that are uh, making those products. And, and to me, um, again, as director of conservation, one of the things that's real important to me is that people realize that when you spend your dollars on American-made products, especially conservation-related products, things that are used in the outdoors, your guns, your ammo, your you name it, okay, your decoys, your dog products, you can go down the list. All of those things are staying in the American economy. They're not going overseas. And those things are uh, in some parts, as you well know, uh, are things that contribute back to conservation programs. So I feel just about as strongly as Gazalski did that, uh, you know, it's uh, honestly kind of a patriotic thing to think about made in America products, whether we're talking decoys or whatever else you're talking about. Sure. And that's one thing that if somebody's not familiar with GNH decoys is they are 100% made in the United States. Absolutely. So that's, that's something that's not very common in any industry, let alone the hunting industry. So, well, and full disclosure, it's hard to do. Ye well, I mean, yeah. it's a challenge at every turn to keep it that way and to, and to make that happen. But you guys had the opportunity to see that 
from one end of the building to the other, you know, you're starting mm-hmm. with bead, bead plastic and from the, from the plastic, you know, and, being and in the on States. the other end of the same building, here you yeah. go. It's coming out as a decoy. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So in 34, I uh, just wanted to hit back on this. That's a, it was a goose decoy was the first one, right? Right. And it was paper mache. Right. Yeah. I that's that's where everything started. That. And, and I'm, I'm assuming they traveled around with sets of them, probably did some in-person sales as far as they could travel in the thirties. And then they made it away back here and made some more and, and went and did that again. And but GNH got the patent on that too. At, at the uh, time. at the time, they developed a nickname of the Henrietten, and people now wonder, well, where did that come from? What does the Henrietten mean? It's even difficult to kind of say. Uh, but the story behind that is, is as they would travel and and sell the decoys and share the decoys, folks would discover them or they would have them and they would go hunting with a friend and the friend would want some, but they couldn't recall exactly who sold them, what the person's name was. And they weren't always sure what the company was. So they would send letters to the local postmaster as a general inquiry and say, I'm trying to contact the Henry Eden that's making those goose decoys. I need some of those goose decoys. And, of course, these, these letters came in over and over and over in the postmaster. I'm sure in the 30s there wasn't just a whole lot in Henrietta. Mm-hmm. And, and he was a local person also and familiar with who they were trying to get a hold of. But that nickname stuck. And here we are, you know this much longer and and uh we yeah, still that, have that as some of our insignia and hutton was didn't just roll off the tongue no it's even worse than henry Eden, right yeah, <laughs> yeah. That's, so that's so the henry Eden was uh, i guess found on the map and and they would send their letters here and, and so that original paper mache goose decoy forever was the henry Eden, you know and uh you'll, the collectors are out there have them you'll, you'll you'll see them discuss if you get into conversations about you know decoy history and nostalgic products that one that one's always discussed and people talk about having them sure and we've labeled different things here you'll see it on some of the product boxes um we actually have a a brewery in tulsa that's a partner that labeled the beer for us and uh, they nicknamed that can the the henrietta Mm -hmm. so it kind of gets reused what i think is incredible too is let's not forget they started this company in the middle of the depression well that's it you start thinking 1934 and if you really want to dive into that you think about where this was you know we're we're way out here in oklahoma and 34 that was somewhere to be it was way out there Uh, it wasn't a thriving commerce here it was it was country place Aaron, that's a great point uh you know you can look at the history of the watersheds and 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 the river systems that are heavily uh running through eastern oklahoma and a lot of our dams uh the ccc program the the dams that were built the lakes and watersheds that were built to try to stop erosion put people to work uh protect against flooding and so forth we didn't have those lakes we weren't Mm -hmm. covered with water like we are now eastern oklahoma is known as green country we've got a lot of water um None of that existed. In fact, it was coming right off the dust bowl. Right? That's it. So, mm-hmm. Like you say, so we're in a we're in an economical depression. Folks that live here, in a lot of cases, were just a generation removed to being in some kind of, you know, whether they were moving here to seek refuge or they were transplanted here or you name it. There's a lot of history in Northeast Oklahoma. Yeah. But right, our habitat was different. It was rolling prairie and rivers and streams. And so, how two guys in that setting, with that economic base, decide to make a hunting decoy. Still puzzles my mind, especially right. goose hunting. Yeah. But they did, and it stuck, and we're still here, you know, producing it. And again, waterfowlers uh, that know the GNH name are so connected in a heritage way to their own history with the decoys, with their family history. Um, it's really hard for me, and it, and it probably is hard for a lot of folks to go back. I mean, you've got to look at some old, an old uh, black and white reels. To see the uh, Arlo Guthrie days where everybody's in a hoopty and they're making their way to California, you know, and they're, they're, they're giving up the ship. You know, they don't want to be in Oklahoma. It's a dust bowl. can't grow anything and there's no jobs and they're all Okies going to the West. And, and there was these folks that were just pretty dang stubborn, you know, mm-hmm. about staying here and, and, and making a product and making a living. And, and they were obviously dedicated to waterfowl hunting. So here we yeah. are. It's, so, a, it's a great story, really. It really is. Yeah. After all these years now, I mean, so let's talk about the present. Great. Um, what's come? You know, what's going on right now at G and H? And that's kind of why we're here. It's in Rogers. And that's you know a really cool step. We haven't seen G and H decoys, and I think in over ten years. I think we had carried them in the past. I remember them in 
you know, back in the store, maybe when I first started. I've been with them almost 11 years. I think we had some at the time. Well, to be respectful, Chandler, to your listeners, um, we know that uh, GNH was big, and it became very big and very strong, and then it went away. And uh, everything changes. That's one constant you can always bet on. And as things changed with Gazalski and GNH, from about the year 2000, maybe the late 90s, the Internet became uh, a big thing. Uh, Richard Gazalski got it in his mind that he was going to be able to market directly to consumer through the Internet. And uh, he was pretty innovative. He was a troubleshooter. He was a machinist. He was a fixer. That guy could make things he could create. You know, he could solve problems. Well, he got ahead of himself on the Internet, thought he could do business without Rogers, without Cabela's, without Bass Pro, without Shields, without a lot of folks. And he literally called everyone and said, hey, I, we've got the Internet now. You guys can buy from me at retail just like everybody else. And he literally gave up all of his retail contacts with everybody at the snap of a finger in one day. So he didn't realize how badly he was shooting himself in the foot to break off relations with these partners. But he did. And he didn't do the legwork that he had to establish in the Internet to help people find him on the Internet. So uh, basically he had his business go down the tubes as far as the numbers he was able to sell. He started cutting corners on material quality. He had to try to balance the, the, the folks and the, and the budgets and the things that, you know, when he wasn't having decoy money coming in, but he's trying to provide decoys. And so that really, really messed him up. And about the same time, he's getting pretty old. Um, he died at age 88, and it was probably from about 2000 to 2015 his age and, and health started to wear on him, and he started to go down quite a bit in his health. So those things compounded the problems, and from about 2000 to 2018, things went down to the point that he finally passed away. And, you know, in that time, a lot of folks got laid off, and decoys stopped getting made and stopped getting sold, and, and the retail connections and the relationships with people went south. There was a lot of folks that you know, knew that GNH was a big, solid brand. Their, their uh, consumers wanted that brand. They wanted to carry GNH, but it, it fell away. So in that time, everybody just kind of saw GNH just kind of, you know, evaporate. And it was a, uh, a process that was kind of sad, I guess, but it was a growth thing that happened. Some dedicated people stayed here and, and uh, kept the factory from getting looted, I guess you could almost mm -hmm. say. I mean, there wasn't a lot of production that went on, but there were a few folks that stayed here and kept things in place. And it was after Dick Gazalski passed away that things were passed on, and the new owners, of course, took over. And uh, this is something that doesn't get said a lot, Ben, but I, I'm one of those guys that Ben knows me that says maybe more than he should at times. There were other folks that wanted to buy GNH Decoy, and they had plans to move it to Mexico. And they made it known that they were going to fire everybody and sell this place off. So we were, of course, in hindsight, very proud of the fact of, of the investors that, that uh, Ray Penny put together. They took this thing over, and, and uh, as I've said, he was a Marine. Dick Gazalski was a Marine. These guys feel very patriotic towards Made in America stuff, and it became a passion of theirs that they're going to keep it just like it is, just where it is, and rebuild on, on what they've had as a foundation. So that brought us back to where you see it now. Yeah, it started, you know, and like Carlos said, as things tapered off, there were maintenance needs left on the table. So when Ray and that team took over six months ago, a lot of investment right off the bat in the maintenance needs and getting to where if we were going to produce a decoy – it was going to be up to the GNH standard that everybody knows and trusts, uh, because you can't you can't start over and, and and make a sorry product. You have to make the product that people depend on, and it took it took quite a bit of a of a what what's the phrase Ray always uses uh, strapping up your bootlaces tight and and uh, rolling your sleeves up and getting to work because there's volunteers here people people come in here because they believe in it and want it to go be successful and uh, you know six months down the road here 
we've hired back i don't know how many staff are in this building now but a um, couple dozen folks and and there's a lot of machines right that are still laying quiet but as things continue to march we know that there's going to be more machines lit up and there's going to be newer machines and there's going to be all kinds of other improvements that they uh, have in the works but They've got to take everything a step at a time. Well, so. they, and they've brought several online that have been offline for years, and yeah. they're out there working right now. I mean, you saw some of them yesterday sweating and getting the job done. So it's it's pretty exciting, and we're we're up to uh, well, we're we're trying to produce decoys for Rogers. Rogers put in a big order. Se- several people have put in sizable orders, and and uh, we're able to keep up with that, and that's a good sign. It's positive breath of life. So, well, and I and I just want to reemphasize that it was during the demise of the company. In the last 20 years, uh, 20 to 25 years, I've had a few folks, not many, honestly, not many, but a few folks have come up and said, boy, I, I used to think G&H was good, but I've got some decoys that are, are not that good. They cracked or they lost some paint. And as I said, there were some corners that were cut as he began to struggle. But uh, they feel very strongly about the rigid uh, guidelines that they're building these decoys from, just like the good old days. Yeah. No, a lot of the machines that are producing these decoys, they're from the original. Yeah, they're from the 60s. Yeah. And, you know, I've not been to China, but I've I've been told by folks that know a lot more about this that, you know, they've got automated, computerized, uh, scaled-down machines that are one-third the size of our machines. They're much faster than our machines. They're much more efficient than our machines. They can do a lot of things a lot faster and slicker, and maybe that's important to somebody that, you know, somebody has computerized equipment. We've still got the the manual machines that, you know, still does everything pretty basic and slow, um, takes people to work it. Those people are, of course, on the payroll, and we're happy to have Americans working on our American machines making American decoys. You know, we don't have all of that, but the one thing we do have is we do have some dedicated folks that really feel loyal to this company. A lot of employees that are back here now are are employees that were with us long before Dick left. So they've wanted to come back, um, and so they've been hiring some of the old folks back that – um, that they, you know, had back in the day. In fact, Ray likes to joke that uh, Taco Bell is a place he can't go eat because he's hired back about five of their employees. He's afraid they'll spit in his taco. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so, you know, it's um, it's it's not a, a, a real flush job market in uh, in Henrietta. So Henrietta is, is a big um, partner to the community as far as uh, employment, and there's a number of folks here right right in Henrietta that are with us. So as they continue to bring things back online, I know they'll continue to improve and, and, and modernize things and get things improved. But right now it's, it's back to business, making decoys and, and getting these old machines working. Well, I think what's kind of cool is just the nostalgia behind some of these old machines and that, you know, I could potentially buy a decoy that's made on the same machine that my grandfather used to Absolutely. get decoys sure. that he bought back in Absolutely. the 60s well, and 70s. I mean, there's some nostalgia there that's really yeah. pretty cool. I'll give you something related to. It's like a brick oven pizza. You know, there's there's pizza businesses that make them in 45 seconds, and they're on a roller rack, and it's hot, and, the, you know, the pie goes in one end, it gets cooked, pops out the other end quick. Or you go sit down at a place and have a nice beverage and visit with your friends while your pizza's over there roasting in a brick oven, and some, some you know, cook is standing there watching it, waiting, and he knows right when it's ready. Uh, what's the difference in quality and what's the difference in your experience using it, right? I parallel that to these decoys. They're probably built faster somewhere else. Right. Um, they're probably built, you know, so efficient they're less expensive somewhere else. Right. But right. when it comes to where your money goes and what kind of quality control standard we put into it and what experience you have with it yourself as the user in the long run, you know, it's, it's up to you where you want to spend your dollars, what sure. you want to support. And, you know, I was at the SHOT Show this past January with Ray Penny. And, uh, of course, we met with a lot of retailers and vendors and people that were interested in, in the decoys and waterfowling and so forth. And we happened to be right next to a booth that was Chinese products making bags and, and, and shell uh, gun cases and all kinds of shell bags and different things like that. Uh, gear bags and what have you and 
the guy that repped for that Chinese company, and it, and there were Chinese ladies there, and so we knew it was kind of Asian company and so forth. And uh, a, a gentleman came over and he said, "Hey, I want to I want to talk to you guys about your decoys uh, getting made in China." And so here they came again, and they know that this is going to happen, and so they conspired. A couple of the partners with Ray, they said, "Okay, we want to we want to visit with this character. We want to see what he says. We want to see what he promises. We want to see what they're going to do with us. Uh, what do they want to offer?" And this nice portly Chinese gentleman came over on the last day of the shot show, and they had made an appointment. And he was very polite and uh, pretty well spoken in his English, but of course he had a, a strong Chinese dialect. But he. He started visiting about the history of his company, and he repped for this company that makes decoys, and he started naming off brands, and he started saying, you know, we make decoys for these people and these people and these people, and we can make decoys for you too, and everybody will win. He said, we make decoys for you so much cheaper and so much better, so much faster, and it'll be good for you. It'll be good for us, and and uh, as he continued on, you know, our guys were asking him questions about different uh, quality control issues and and the way that they would do things. And one of the things that uh, I call it our secret sauce, and Ray doesn't like me to say too much about this, but, uh, you know, one of the things that GNH does is they employ extra people, extra resources, extra time to cook the decoys. They actually cook the decoys. Now, what they're doing is the same thing that you would do if you're getting a good paint job. Okay, you can spray something on there or you can go to extra trouble and bake bake it on and make it last. And that's the one thing I hear a lot of people talk about is the paint holds really well on GNH decoys for a long time. So we go to a lot of trouble to do that. Well, in China, they don't take any extra time, any extra resource of people or whatever to do any of that. So I believe that a lot of their decoys may look real pretty, but I don't think they're going to hold up as long on the paint. Well, we were asking this gentleman at the SHOT Show about, you know, we've got some proprietary methods that we apply to our decoy production that we're really proud of, and we want to kind of keep that to ourselves. That's what we do and how we do it and what we do. And uh, what kind of assurances can you give us, Ray asked him. You know, we, we, we kind of want to keep this private. And the gentleman literally shrugged his shoulders and said, it China. Yeah. And that was the end of his answer. Um, so, you know. So uh, none. <laughs> that's that's correct. You can expect your secrets to all be out and our country's going to have way with it. Yeah. So, you know, that just guaranteed that uh, uh, that's the reason why the Gazalskis and uh, the Pennies and anybody else that understands the international trade issues does not want to give up all of our family secrets to other countries. Mm -hmm. Interesting. You remember that goose we saw yesterday? The big one? Oh, yes. The super mag. Yeah, the super mag that you could curl up. Aaron, you could curl up under yeah, it. Yeah, it's 42-inch long breast to tail. Yeah. And that was actually in a vacuum mold. Right. Yeah, so most of our decoys are blow molded. Yeah. And that, when the, the shells go through a vacuum molding process, that's they're, how they're built. They're yeah, free. they're heated up and then they're sucked into the mold, right. which is pretty neat. Right. Well, it's crazy. It's a 42-inch shell, which... Again, you don't need many of those, but they're just impressive to look at size-wise. I mean, they're just, they're huge. Talk yeah. about an attention getter. No and doubt, that, right? And that's one thing I'm seeing in this current lineup and, and for G&H is size. You have size options, but you have, you know, super mags and, and all sorts of different stuff. We've seen pintails that look like the size of geese and all sorts of stuff. That, super you know, mag mallards. Yeah. So I wanted to get into that a little bit. I mean, if someone's not familiar with G&H, I didn't know if you want to talk about. Like... I do. Yeah, let me take it from there. So with G&H, a lot of those, you know, we, we, we titled the, the actual size of the decoy. That way we can, you know, discuss them in the industry. And, you know, as a consumer, you're buying a standard or a Magnum or Super Magnum. And, you know, that's three different decoys. And <clears throat> it's not that those are new. It's not that that's a, something brand new with this new era of G&H. We've been making most of those for a long time. The reason they're different to you is most of the other products in the industry have gone the other way. The standard you know, offering of a Mallard for a lot of different brands is a little smaller than it used to be. And they're marketing it that way. And there may be consumers that want that. 
Um, numbers is something all of us duck hunters think about. Usually we try to use more, more, more as far as quantity goes. And you're seeing it marketed that the hey, that you can carry more of these. They're lighter. A dozen of these is lighter than a dozen of those. I, I personally feel like the uh, the shipping crisis may be playing into that. You can get you know more of them on a boat if they're a little bit smaller. But you know your standard middle of the road lineup for just the average product for most other companies is a little smaller than it was say ten or fifteen years ago. G and H is running what we've always run. So our standard, if our standard mallard, and I'm just I don't have the sheet in front of me. If it's thirteen inches, what you're seeing from other companies is there's just eleven and a half. And when we call something a magnum, it might be 16 or 17 inches. Other folks are using a 14 inch and that's their magnum. Now we talk about this super magnum and yes, that goose shell super magnum. We, I wish we made a float of that size. It'd be, Jeez. I'd have to have a second boat to get some out there, yeah. but, but that shell is, is 42 inches breast to tail. And if you'll, if you're listening to this, reach around and find a yardstick and then add six more inches. Mm-hmm. It's, it's that much bigger. And that's just the, the body portion. So then, there, then there's a, you know, the, the sentry head comes up off of that thing. It looks kind of like my, my forearm and my hand coming mm-hmm. up off of that. So it's, it's very impressive. And, you know, is that necessary on every hunt? Probably not, right? I mean, there's, there's places you're going to be set up hunting that the birds are coming, and that thing might be overkill. But, gosh, if you're in a public marsh and you want attention from wild birds versus, you know, the neighbor's set up over there, uh, there's a major advantage. When you have that much size, they're going to see you first. Same thing I, I – I, I always give the example, if, if you're hunting between a roost and a feeding area and you're trying to gather attention from birds that may not have even been planted on land in there, you know, ag country, if they're coming mm-hmm. from one area and they're just they're flying through that whole river bottom looking for anywhere to pick out and light, when you've got that much size, you should be able to get their attention that much easier uh, with, with a great big decoy like that. And their shells, they stack, you can carry, you know, if you were using a sled or something to drag them out there or a cart, you can mm-hmm. stack them up neatly. You can take two dozen and get them around pretty easy. Well, I th- yeah, to me, and that's what we were talking about yesterday. You know, they're perfect, like you said, if you're hunting traffic and you're on a sandbar, or maybe, you know, you're set up those things on the ice anywhere. You're giving away my secrets edge, now. Yeah. The sandbar, no. <laughs> thing, sandbar is where they really shine. But, I was going to yeah, say. I wasn't going there, but you did, so we'll talk about it. Yeah, but I mean, gosh, they're just, again, they're just impressive just because they're huge. And I feel the same way about the ducks. So, so uh, you know, I'm big into the Super Mag Mallards. That's my favorite. Um, anatomically, they're a little blocky looking. I mean, I can, I can lay them next to a, another product that our regular mallard, a magnum, has mm. anatomically a more accurate, you know, body than the super mag. The super mag has kind of got a big old round barrel of the decoy. And then the head itself is just a, you know, kind of like a big sausage link limped over, you know, and then the bill on it. And it's got a big broad bill versus the magnum's got like higher ridges on the back and some more, you know, physical detail in the carving and it, it actually is a little bit better if you're in your hand saying which one looks more accurate i would say the magnum not the super magnum but man when i get those super magnums on the water and i get back in the blind and i'm looking out there at, you know the ones on the edge are at 40 yards they just stick out they cover so much more water and i feel like it's a two for one i'd rather run 24 of those super magnums than 48 of the standards and it's just the size difference alone they take up more space on the water and I feel like they get they get more attention. And I've I've been there. I've had a big spread of big decoys out and been right down the shoreline from another group of hunters. And they see me first and here they come. And I, I'm no caller. I mean, I have a duck call on my neck. It's typically something somebody carved and gave to me. And I know how to give them a little confidence noise as they're circling. But when if we if this was a, a podcast about duck hunting one oh one, when I discuss calling, it's gonna be the last thing on my mm-hmm. list. Now there are, there are duck call people out there that can blow one and talk the duck talk and really give them a sexy Susie and get them on the water. That's not Ben. Okay. I'm all about decoy power and hiding. Those are my two number, number two, number one and number two priorities. No, and coming into the shop, I mean, here in Henrietta, you have like a, a front shop that's just neat to see all the stuff. Um, I saw about, about any species I could think of. I mean, you guys have the cans and redheads and bluebills, all the divers, and then there's, you know, I saw coots, and there's pintail, widgeon, gadwall. I mean, you guys have quite the offering, and in multiple sizes, depending on the, the the species that you were looking at, with geese, and I saw snows, and I saw specks, or white fronts, all that stuff. So that's a big offering that you guys are continue moving forward with this year. Mm-hmm. And you said you, you 
I know GNH over the years has produced lots of things, but you're kind of cleaning it. So yeah, we we trimmed the product line, so we're we're under new ownership and under this new management style. We talked about maintenance and bringing back some staff and and really trying to spearhead the mission. And at this time, it made more sense from a business standpoint and production standpoint to really stick with what we're good at. And and previously, GNH had some products that you put batteries in and they and they did some moving and some shaking. And at this time, it really didn't make a lot of sense. Those those were off course of what we're known for. And to, to be totally honest about it, there are other companies building some of those products that are that are functioning very well. And we don't even need to be in that game right now. We're 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 sticking with what we're good at, and that is that is a dependable decoy, whether it's a floater, a full body, or shell that that you can rely on that when you when you pay that premium sticker price for it, it's gonna last you several years and you're gonna be able to use them. And you know, you talked about grandpa leaving them in the marsh all winter. Mm-hmm. I can't imagine a tougher environment on anybody's product. I, I'm not going to stand here and say, go stick GNH out there all season and leave them that way and they'll be fine. They're going to show where everything would if you left mm-hmm. it out there. That's mother nature. Um, but they do hold up better than anything else in an environment like that. And a guy like me, they, they live in the bottom of the boat. They're not in a bag. They're not in a padded environment whatsoever. I usually have a couple of people. We, we run long strings. We hook them with a hook, drag them over the side of the boat, wrap some string around them, throw them in the floor and grab another one. And, you know, I've got to be fast and efficient if I'm going to put out a big spread. And, you know, when you're reaching out of the boat, out of the boat blind, it's, they're banging on the side of the boat. They slide on the blind. They get tossed on the floor. I don't get to hunt every day. I wish I did. But they're still probably floating 40, 50 days a year. So they go through a lot of abuse. And there just aren't many other decoys that can live that life. And, you know, after a season or two, still have some green on the head or, or yellow on the bill like they're supposed to. Well, and don't forget the head's turn. So... Uh, I think that's a real special thing about those spreads that you're talking about, the different lines that we've stayed with. Everything's still got the turning heads. And so you can take, you know, your basic setup of decoys and, and, and give yourself a pretty good look, uh, a mix-up of, of how you lay your spread out just by turning some heads. Sure. A lot of guys like to be able to manipulate that. They want to turn the head this way or that way. Uh, the old-timers used to say you never want a decoy looking at the blind. So when the decoy's floating and the wind's holding it one direction, I would, you know, if I've got a turning head decoy in hand, I'm going to turn that bill away from where my blind is. Now, I don't know whether while a duck is landing, he can recognize, mm-hmm. oh, man, they're all looking over there. I should look <laughs> over there, too. Maybe they do. Maybe they don't. But hunters think they do. We like to have control of our gear. We do make several products that don't have a movable head. If you prefer fixed head decoys, I like a mix myself. But uh, that is something pretty unique at GNH. GNH. Not everybody, a lot of folks are building um, decoys that have different shapes, different postures, and the, in, in a set, there'll be some looking left and some looking right and some printing. Uh, but with our turning head, you can make them whatever you want them to be. Mm-hmm. And one of you brought up ice in the river. You know, when you hunt that late winter, semi-frozen environment, a lot of times that's a slow hunt. It's a, it's a, you're hunting an area that maybe those birds have been somewhere and fed, and now they're going to come back and loaf. And what would be natural if you were in an airplane flying up that river looking down is you're going to find groups of resting birds. Uh, and you see it, you know, a lot of times your goose hunters, they'll want a whole spread of sleepers. They'll pick out a spot and it'll just be a, well, you can do that with their turning heads. You can stick these decoys off in a quiet pool where they're not moving, they're still, and you can turn that head back around and it appears like they're preening or they're just tucked in and just totally at rest. And so you can, you can take a decoy and, and give it a little bit of a, you know, character, if you will, uh, to your personal taste. Right. What'd you think of those super magnum divers? The they divers awesome? Are, yeah, the mm-hmm. big divers are cool. That's I something. I don't have the resource to hunt big divers a lot, but, man, if I did, that canvas bag. It's huge, it, and it <laughs> pops. It really pops on the water. It's white. It's giant. It's it's so impressive. You have a, it, you have a bluebill, like, four times the size of the blue, uh, uh, bluebill I've ever seen. The redhead looked amazing, the giant super mag redhead. Yeah. They're really cool. Mm-hmm. And, and for me, I can imagine a setting where I'm I'm in choppy water, and it's kind of rough out. And those things are out there riding waves, but they're so big. I mean, they just, they oh, still yeah. show that, you know, a smaller decoy, you give it, you give it windy water and maybe a little crest of white cap. They hide. I mean, they start to disappear and, and those bigger ones won't. I, I know I use our super mag pintails and they're so tall and they're so long and all that white. And then that, and then that perfect chocolate Brown, they really stick out and they look great. And, and even if you don't use a big number setup, I've hunted, I've hunted some timber holes, like like is real common in Louisiana and Arkansas, 
and I, you know the opening in the timber may only be the size of somebody's bedroom where these ducks are falling down but i'll put two or three of those drake pintails out there and a couple of super mag mallards and you know you're standing in the trees kicking your feet and that's all you need they're, they're flying around treetop height looking for a place to get down and those things really shine you know late winter there's not a lot of white down there yeah at the mm-hmm. water level everything is is brown and muddy and cypress gray chandler what else do we want to hit well, uh, I think it's been pretty cool to come down here and see this whole operation. Um, I mean, we got to see, we got to put our hands in the pellets, which I don't know if we mentioned on the podcast, we did it on the video, but the pellets are recycled and regrinded and blended with virgin plastic. So you guys don't waste anything. There's right. no, right. There's yeah, nothing. So when they come out of the mold, you know, you, you start with a pour of, of plastic, it's melted and it's shot into the mold. And when the, when the decoy comes out of the mold, there will be the body of the decoy but around the edges, there's, there's places where it filled the mold, and you have to take a, a box knife and trim that off. We've got some machines that trim off you know, on the geese and different ones. There's, there's a, an operation there. But what you're talking about is all that's what would otherwise be called scrap is not trash here. We have another machine that takes that edge, that square corner, that base, whatever it was that was product of the mold, and it's been trimmed off the decoy. We run that through another machine that grinds it and chips it back up into small, fine pieces just like the virgin plastic comes in the beads. And then, you know, they've been here for 88 years. They've got a whole lot of product knowledge and testing and, and development process there. And they have figured out the perfect mix of the reused plastic that come out of that scrap. And they always add some virgin plastic. Mix that up. We've got another machine that mixes it. And then it goes right back into the process. So, you know, there's not a trash truck leaving G&H every day with a bunch of bulk plastic. Mm-hmm. Well, and then there's, those, there's those, uh, those flawed decoys. You know, it's it's a fact that the machine's going to put out 10, 15% of the decoys are going to have something wrong. Some Somewhere something happened in the machine that it came out and the decoy had a problem. It wasn't up to what they want it to, to be like. And those decoys are not just, they're, they're not run through the process, painted and sold. They go back into the grind. So those decoys are not wasted either. And the employees know... And, and Ray has a, a great incentive program for the employees that uh, they're all involved in the quality control inspections. So you'll see decoys as you go through the racks where they're approaching through the painting process. Uh, just about the very last thing that happens, you'll see a decoy that may have a piece of masking tape on it here, there, wherever. And somebody sees a problem with it, they put a piece of tape on that and it's either going to get fixed or something's going to happen with that plastic. But that's not going to get wasted either. Yeah, sure. well, there's several stages of quality control. And, and Carlos is right. Right off the bat, if the mold itself, if there was a fail, those can be reground. Plastic's not wasted. They can be reused. Later right. on in paint, there may be something that's inaccurate but could be repainted and fixed. And, and if that's the case, we fix them. If they make it to the end of the line and it's just something you can't fix, but it's not up to the G&H quality standard, then we call it a factory second. And that's one of the things... We, we skimmed right over, but the, the locals love that. So out here in the showroom where you talked about, you know, we showcase all of the products. We have, a, we have a big John boat sitting out there on display, and factory seconds go in that. So if you're ever passing down, you know, Highway 75 through Henrietta and you catch us during business hours, come in, see the showroom, uh, pilfer through the factory seconds pile because those are priced to sell. Dirt cheap isn't the word I'll use, but they're, they're definitely affordable. And the factory second might be that the – one little strip of white paint got off center a little ways and it's just not painted where it should be or or you know i've not been able to find why it's second on on most all usually (laughs) i'm looking at them and i can't tell the difference either so it's uh i'd be shocked if the mallards i'm hunting can pick it out um so there's there can be some great bargains out there in the factory seconds pile so one part of the process besides the reusing and regrinding of the plastic where none of it goes to waste is the attention to detail with the eyes. Explain that a little bit. It's not just a, hey, we're going to paint this eye black on this decoy and call it good or paint it. That's another thing we're known for. The mold itself has a recessed location for the eye uh, for almost every duck we make and geese too. And when they get completely through the paint process, completely through the quality control, they get to the last table, there are two things left to do, and that's place the eyes and then weight the keels. We weight the keels with sand. That's a manual process. They literally take a little funnel and scoop sand, pour it in there, and pop a, pop a plug in the back of it, and, and now the kills are waste, or, uh, are weighted. Um, the eyes are the same, and, and different birds have different colored eyes. 
Um, so we have different colored, you know, eyes. And I believe Derek told us they were acrylic. Is that mm-hmm. is that what you guys recall? Um, so there were there were acrylic eyes. We have them produced for us, and there's a special tool they use. But they pop in that recess on the mold decoy, so they, they snap a, in, they stay there, and then a couple of them require a pupil painted on. I was about that I was deal. about to address that. It, it, that just blows my mind. If you've seen some of those, uh, is it uh, the redhead or one of those uh, ducks that divers just got a bright yellow eye, and there is a guy that literally takes a toothpick with a dip of paint on the tip of a toothpick, and he puts a pupil dot on every one of those yellow eyes. Yeah, they come out looking great. Yeah. I mean, it's... It's a quality touch is what it is. Yeah, it's a personal touch from a human that says, we're going to make this look exactly like it's supposed to look on this species of bird. So they, they've they got those yellow eyes, those acrylic eyes, and they're just plain yellow, but they have gone in and... He literally can shake a box about the size of a box of shotgun shells, and he can shake a box full of those acrylic eyes, and he says, this is how many I make in a day. So, I mean, it takes that much time and trouble to to build up those eyes uh, to to have for that, that species when they're doing that. So they've got 107, I believe, molds to work with and i don't know ben honestly uh off the top of my head what what they're producing but uh over 100 molds that, that they've got in in the storage and and so whenever the time comes and somebody has a big order for a bunch of golden eyes or whatever redheads or whatever they happen to be then they can you know break that mold out and get busy mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. yep there's a something we haven't talked about yet was there's a some packs that we're offering at rogers that are pretty cool um, i think that help you get either into gnh or or expand your diver collection or just add your your puddler pack but we have two six packs one's a, a puddler pack with some multiple species and one's a diver pack with multiple species uh, tell us about that well it's it's a it's a present for those that stayed with your podcast this long because mm-hmm. it's uh, that's new information. Not not everybody knows that, and that was a partnership with Rogers. Uh, Stevie over there at Rogers decided that would be something he felt like his customers would would enjoy having the opportunity to buy. We love it because it's it's not really intended as a sampler pack. It's intended as as a way for hunters to add some variety to their spread. But it works perfectly as a sampler pack. So if you don't have any of our Gadwall and you buy the Puddler pack then you're going to get three different puddler species and one will be our gadwall. You know, that's not, that's not something people think, Oh, I need to go buy two dozen gadwall. But maybe when you have some in your hand, you think, you know, these are great. Maybe I should have 10 of them. You might be calling down here, ordering them. Um, I think we have them priced at a point that's affordable for folks. And whether you're looking for divers or puddlers, there's, there's, you know, three species in each one. And, uh, we let you guys pick out which ones they were. And of course we had some logistics there, the way we do our products in runs. Uh, there was a little bit of work to figuring out how we were going to build, these three different ones and then get them packaged up, you know, per six and, and three different uh, drakes in each one and, and, you know, two of each and get them out the door. But uh, that's going to happen. And you'll see that with Rogers this fall. That'd be pretty cool to see. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. So I can't think of anything else in particular that we want to hit. I know we had made a kind of a rough outline. I think we've hit most everything there. So yeah, Chandler, is there anything else that just want to thank you guys for having us down? Oh, it's absolutely. It's been cool to see the factory and yeah, everything. Thanks for coming. I, uh, I love to do this because you don't, you're not as impressed by the super mag shell until you hold it. Mm-hmm. The, the nostalgic piece of the factory isn't anything other than old until you come here and walk through and listen to the stories and understand it. So it's, mm-hmm. it's wonderful that not only you guys came and got to do it yourself, but to also turn around and produce this content for everybody else to experience. That's, we appreciate it. Yeah. And if you're listening, we, we have put out a YouTube video of, kind of like everything we talked about. Um, a quick recap of G&H and the brand, and then we went through from the pellets all through the molding and the painting and everything, packaging, eyes, the whole whole nine yards. You guys can watch that if you guys have, you know, are interested in what we've talked about as far as the, the building of the decoys. It's pretty cool to see right here in, in uh, Henrietta, Oklahoma. Yeah, you don't, you don't get a lot of Made in America stuff anymore, so it's really an honor and a privilege to visit you guys that are, are sticking to it and... Um, doing doing good things down here so yeah again like Chandler said thank you for having us and again the nostalgia for me visiting the place of decoys I grew up hunting over 
you know, in the factory where they were produced in. So it's, it's really pretty cool. So thank you so much for having us. Thank you. Thanks for coming. It's great, great sharing this with you guys, Aaron, and we appreciate that. I'll just put in a little plug and let you know that as uh, GNH expands our our footprint, we we partner with Delta and G, and uh, uh, Ducks Unlimited and and anybody that is in the sports world that wants to do things with uh, conservation and and uh, obviously in the waterfowl world, we offer a package. Uh, oftentimes to these groups when you hear of a banquet that they're doing a fundraiser, GNH will donate a tour of the factory uh, with our decoys and the winner of some of those uh, uh, auction, live auction items of those tours of the factory, we let them come into the factory and build their own decoy and run them through the machine and actually hit some of the paint process and leave here with a decoy that they made and pull the levers on themselves. So I think that's kind of cool to get to uh, not only see the things that you've got on your YouTube video, but to be able to consider coming here and uh, Ray Penny will take them out and he duck hunts with them and takes them to dinner, eating barbecue up in Oak Mogi and, and uh, shows them a good time. So to, to get to really see and walk through the factory and firsthand experience the, uh, the heritage and the history and then pull some levers on your own decoy is a pretty cool experience. Oh, absolutely. That's that sounds really cool. And so if, if if people are reaching out, they'd be working with you as far as Absolutely. Um, yeah, banquets and DU stuff absolutely. like that. Absolutely. They should they should call us and, and talk to us about that and, and that's something that I would manage with them and, and we like to schedule what we can donate for a for a banquet fundraiser and and of course those those outfits are involved in conservation and that's something again we feel very strongly about and and then we've had a great response from folks that have won the bids on those that want to come in. And a lot of them have said, you know, the shotgun that was involved, the decoys are great. That's all wonderful. But I want to pull the levers and I want to build my own decoy. <laughs> hey, why not? Right. Yeah. Why not? All right. Well, G&H decoys back in Rogers and as a brand and a company. That a wrap? That's a wrap. All right, guys, we hope you enjoyed today's podcast. If you did, go ahead and give us a subscribe. That way you're going to get a notification every time we put out a new podcast. Chandler, what else should they do? Go to our uh, social media pages and give us a like on Facebook, Instagram, or YouTube. Uh, get a subscribe to YouTube channel. We do uh, product reviews there. And then uh, giveaways is a great part of our social media as well. And then we just want to thank you guys for what you guys do and support us so we can do stuff like this. So thank you.